sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian and sitting in in the second chair this week. Bill Medley's back. What's up, buddy? Hey, man. Thanks for having me back. The, the reviews are in, and they're good enough for you to continue when Murdoch's not available. So You're, you're, you're lying. No one, <laughs> no one said anything. It's all right. Your cousin reviewed the show. He said it was great. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Listen, Alex likes it. It's fine with me, uh, right? That works. That works. You can always get involved in the show through the email inbox. That's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at uh, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You can find the website, uh, wearethestoryguys.com. And we've got a message this week from Ivy. Sometimes these are very straightforward questions. I love Ivy's question because it's heady. Listen to this. Hey, guys, I was sitting in a Mexican restaurant that constantly plays reggaeton. And as a casual fan of both reggaeton and all things alternative music and punk adjacent, I started thinking about reggae's strangely large impact. Can you shed some light on how reggae became so influential in alternative rock? That's a hell of a question, right? That's taking it next level there. So, do you do you have like an off the cuff answer to that question? Um, uh, the Clash loved the reggae, and that's it. That's all I know. <laughs> that was where I wanted to go. I wanted to just do a Joe Strummer episode, right? But why wouldn't you, man? <laughs> so I, I I started looking around, and I thought when I started this that this was going to be like a ten part series, right? To even scratch the surface, I thought this is a huge question. You know what I found out? I found out that. It's really one guy. <laughs> one guy is mostly responsible for reggae and rock and roll having any sort of relationship. Really? Yeah. Can, I mean, can I guess? Yeah. Uh, we'll go. Keep going, and, I'll, and then I'll, I'll formulate a guess. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's start from the right. start. Uh, how do you feel about reggae? Uh, I like reggae. I, actually, I like reggae a lot more. Like a couple of years ago, I started listening to Toots yeah, and yeah, yeah. a couple of more like we're going to talk about Toots, yeah, yeah to some modern pe- Peter Tosh. But then, like some modern people that I had absolutely no idea who they were or what they were, and I don't know, sounds pretty good to me. Wait, whenever I think about reggae, I always think of, and I don't know if you were a How I Met Your Mother guy, but there's this there's this clip. Neil Patrick Harris's Barney Stinson says this in a How I Met Your Mother episode when Ted, one of the other characters, is talking about dating a girl who's in a reggae band. How cool is that? Oh, does she know that one song? Mm-mm-chaka, mm-mm-chaka. What's that song called? Oh, right. It's called Every Reggae Song. <laughs> I think about that every time. And I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be snide, but that's sort of how I felt about reggae, right? Like for a long time. <sighs> I just sort yeah. of felt like it all was the same thing over and it's, over. It's funny because I saw a documentary literally last night, and this guy walks into a famous uh, Jamaican recording studio with a famous Jamaican recording engineer, and he was talking about working with the Whalers and all that stuff. And and there's like a you know the all these session guys who are like amazing, and they're like all famous, even though nobody knows them, you know. And yeah. they were showing the difference between like three different types of kind of reggae styles. And I was like, man, I don't know how y'all tell it. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, though, because he was like, oh, yeah, I can kind of, you know, you can hear the subtlety. And it's like, wow. Yeah, I was like, well, lost on me. But <laughs> ironically, when you, uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to Jamaica several times in the last decade, and I loved it. 
And when I was there, I heard quite a bit of reggae, as you might imagine, but not just like at the resort. I mean, going to be honest, I was at resorts, right? So it wasn't like I was in the right. Jamaican countryside doing something super cool. Sure. But uh, even when you would be in transport vehicles or whatever, back and forth, being cabs, that sort of stuff, you'd hear reggae. And specifically one year, well after this song was a hit in the U.S., there was a reggae version of a particular alternative rock song that was all over Jamaica. It was like in every cab I stepped in. reggae version of My Immortal by Evanescence. Remember that wow. song? Yeah. The, yeah. I, I used to call yeah. that when I programmed radio the, the real mood killer. Like, <laughs> there was no way to program around that song. <laughs> uh. and, and so I don't know if this is the actual version that I heard in Jamaica, but I, I think it is. It's RGH DeVille. I had to look all over the internet for it when I started researching this because this is the other thing I think of when people mention reggae and rock and roll in the intersection is that this song probably five to ten years after well at least yeah no probably ten years after it was popular as a modern rock radio hit was a huge hit in Jamaica right so there's uh. there's clearly these connections and honestly I like that song way more as a reggae song <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll agree. God bless Amy Lee but I don't need to hear her sing that song ever again nah, nah, if I nah, could hear R.H. DeVille do it uh, let, let's start with some basic info that I did not know about reggae number one it's not that old as a form of music. Like, how old do you um, think reggae is? Oh, I don't know. You know, I'm thinking way back. Right. I, I was a fifties. <laughs> I thought it, yeah, I thought it had a very long history, but reggae actually emerges in the late 1960s. Wow. Late it, 1960s? Yeah, it's not even called reggae until 1968. Number two, I did not realize that reggae grew out of ska. I thought it was the other way around. Did, oh, okay. Did you okay. realize yeah. that? No, I didn't. And that was one of the forms they were showing me last night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we can talk about these forms. So Ska's, yeah. Ska's an older form of island music, right? To give you basically the 30-second version of all this, over the course of the 60s, you have Ska, which is pretty fast. And it starts to slow down in practice. And so in right. between Ska and Reggae is this form of music that you'll hear referred to as rock steady. That, oh, that was the other one. That's the other oh one, right? Gosh. That was the other one they played. So, so, this is great. so ska <laughs> goes into rock steady, goes into reggae yeah. over the course of a decade or so. But why is it called reggae? So this is where we get to your boy Toots. The yeah. Toots and the Maytales name it reggae. They have a 1968 oh. song called "Do the Reggae," and what? Yeah, that's th awesome. The term sort of sticks to this new version of rock steady and ska. But what does it mean? What does reggae mean? It This is interesting. It really depends on who you ask. There is a 1967 edition of the Dictionary of Jamaican English. So 1967, <laughs> it, it, it is used to describe music in about 1968. But in this dictionary, the word can mean either rags or ragged clothing or a quarrel, a fight, an argument. Interesting. But there's a reggae historian who credits a ska pioneer named Clancy Eccles with altering the Jamaican patois stregge, which means a loose woman, uh, and mm. making it reggae. What? So, <laughs> now, if you ask Toots, Hibbert, 
from Toots and the Maytales, why they called this song Do the Reggae, he says, totally different, he says there's a, a word, this is a quote, there's a word we used to use in Jamaica called strege. If a girl's walking and the guy looks at her and says, man, she's strege, it means she doesn't dress well and she looks raggedy. The girls would oh. say that about men too, so it went both ways. This okay. one morning, this is still a quote from Toots, this one morning me and my two friends were playing and I said, okay man, let's do the reggae. It was just something that came out of my mouth. So we just started singing Do the Reggae, Do the Reggae, and created a beat. And people tell me later that we had given the sound its name. Before that, people had called it Blue Beat and all kinds of other things. Huh. Now, that Very sounds sh- sort of made up. But yeah. partly because there are other interviews where Toots just says reggae is a derivation of the English word regular. And uh. the patron saint of reggae, Bob Marley... He liked yeah. to he liked to say that the word reggae came from a Spanish term for the king's music, which I'm pretty sure is just utter bullshit. <laughs> I don't think that's true at all. Uh, it sounds great. It sounds great though if you're really high. And that I mean, I think we need to talk about that, right? This there was a, a chance that he was really high when he said this that. is a good place to mention a certain bedfellow of reggae, which right. is Rastafarianism. Yes, Rastafarianism is a term I'd always heard. And I knew it was a religion, but I didn't really know anything about it. Did you know that it, first of all, it develops in the 1930s, and it's actually rooted in the Bible. The, oh, no. Yeah. No, uh-huh. The biblical God is referred to as Jah. That's, you've heard that, right? You've heard that uh-huh, in reggae yeah. songs? Yeah. And it's believed that a little bit of Jah's in all of us. So you got a little, I got a little, we all have a little bit of the divinity. But European Christianity that we know in America is a very white religion. I don't think I'm sure. shocking anyone by saying that. Oh. How dare you? <laughs> like I like your shocked man voice. That was, that was as good as I could get. You know, Rastafarianism is Afrocentric, and the one of the tenets is that Africa is the real promised land. So Rastas emphasize that they regard living naturally as being key. So that's why you, naturally in quotes, that's why you likely associate things like dreadlocks and marijuana. Yes. With Rastafarianism. Now, there's a reason, and and let me just specify that the religion refers to it as the ganja. That's not like something, that's not slang, that is actually a Rastafarian term. Oh, I thought yeah. that was made up by like my high school buddy <laughs> Dean. <laughs> I did too. I believe we really sounded like some ignorant white guys. Uh, <laughs> we well, we. I thought that guy that couldn't pass chemistry came up with a great name for weed. Yeah, I thought it was code. It's, so in in uh, Rastafari, uh, cannabis is considered a sacrament. So you know you got grape juice and little wafers in Christianity and in, in European Christianity. In Rastafarianism, you got cannabis now. They, there's a reason for this. First of all, Rastas will argue with you that the use of ganja is promoted in the Bible. I can give you books. I will tell you that I did not learn this in my white Christian upbringing. <laughs> my dad did not. My dad, the preacher, never told me that there is reference to weed in the Bible. I'm going to talk to him about that at our next dinner. I can't imagine why not. Yeah, weird. Uh, but here's, I mean, this makes sense, right? There's a couple reasons that they feel like it's a sacrament. One is that it has healing properties. And you know, most governments are now openly admitting this to a certain yes. degree, right? Mm-hmm. So that's true. They also respect it for inducing feelings of peace and love, which is a legitimate use for it as well. It makes you less of an a-hole. So why would you not <laughs> promote it? It helps you get closer to job. Uh, but music is a big part of the Rasta culture too, right? Drumming, chanting, dancing, 
bass lines, all a big part of the music of their religious ceremonies. And when 1968 hits, Rasta finds this natural partner in reggae. Hmm. Rasta ritual rhythms get incorporated very early into reggae. And the music is not only stylistically close, it also serves as this new vehicle for political and social commentary. Because before this, ska and rocksteady were more good time party musics, right? These were things that right. you dance to. Reggae definitely has those moments, but it very quickly becomes a political vehicle for the Jamaican point of view as well. So, we've set up what this is, but we're still on the island right now, right? So right. we've got this music, right, right. It's, on, it's in Jamaica. How does it get across the globe? So, let's, let's point to a married couple, a certain married couple, Joseph Blackwell, who's a rich kid who had relatives in a food company, uh, in Britain, so he was he had a lot of money from that. He was like an heir yeah. of this company. And Blanche Lindo, who was a Jamaican heiress. These two meet, they get married, they have a kid in London, and then they move the family back to Blanche's homeland, the island of Jamaica. And this is where their son, little Christopher Perry Gordon, which is a very posh name. That's a name of Yes, it is. From given to someone who has the offspring of two heirs. This is where this is where this guy grows up. He grows up in Jamaica. Christopher Perry Gordon. He's twenty one. Oh, okay. So there's two versions of this story about how he how he gets into island music. One is that he worked at hotels on the island, and there was a lot of bands playing at these at these resorts and hotels, and he got into it that way, which seems like probably the way it actually happened. But there's another story. There's a story that when he's twenty one, he goes sailing, and he hits a coral reef, and he gets rescued because he gets stranded out there and he gets rescued hmm. by Rastas. And this changes his life. He gets more into music and he gets into their spiritualism. So I'll allow you to choose which of those <laughs> stories you... I, I sort of... I'm just going to incorporate them both. I'm going to choose to believe that they're both true. Okay. So that year when this happens, when he's 21 years old, he decides to try to capture the beauty of the music of Jamaica by begging his rich parents for a loan. They give him 10 grand in 1958, which is a bunch of money. That's a lot. That's a bunch of money in 1958. Yeah. And he starts recording Jamaican musicians. Now, in fairness, it's a lot harder to record musicians in 1958 than it is now. Probably to take a yes. lot of money. Right. So, this 21-year-old kid, Chris Perry Gordon Blackwell, will name his new business venture Island Records. <laughs> It's like everybody. The the effect that Island Records will have on rock and roll is huge, but it's also far away from where we are right now. We're not even to the 60s yet. This is 1958. He's going to yep. have a little bit of success, lower level success, um, it, pretty quickly. And he'll move to London, and basically what he's doing is breaking Jamaican music songs and artists in London. But he starts to widen his appetite. He's buying up Jamaican catalogs and... Selling them in London. He's doing some stuff that's like it's paying the bills, but it's not changing the world yet. In 64, right. he goes to this bar and he sees this band called the Spencer Davis Group. And they give him a taste for rock and roll. And he sees how rabid young people across the world are getting for this thing, right? Rock and roll. This is yeah. 64. This is the Beatles have just landed, right? So he starts to grow this obsession around taking this music that he loves, the music of the island where he grew up, and getting this type of fandom, this rock and roll fandom, right? Because he sees how interested people are in Steve Winwood, 
right? right. Spencer Davis right. group. Yeah. But he wants them to be that interested in Jamaican music. And if Chris understands anything, he understands marketing. This is something he will prove over and over. You said Island Records had everybody. Here's just a few examples of how he figures out marketing. He signs Roxy Music based on the way they look. I did too. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen what they wear? You'd sign them. Oh, man. Okay, he signs you too, even though he doesn't like their music. Yeah, yeah. I like their music, but yeah. But way before any of that, even back here at the beginning of his career, he realizes that to get this new Jamaican sound of reggae to a bigger audience, he needs not just the right music. He needs the right package. He needs Mm. the right musician. And so he makes a bet on a guy named Jimmy Cliff. Ah! You got a Jimmy Cliff jam you prefer? Um, Did you ever see The Harder They Come? Harder They Come, yeah. I mean, that's the one that comes to mind. Yeah. One of my yeah. early experiences in really loving reggae was as a young kid seeing the movie Cool Runnings. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. that broke reggae open for me. Uh, <laughs> Don't tell anybody I, that. <laughs> I, I can see clearly. To, hey, I stand by that movie, Jamaican Bobsled Team. I quote it all the time. I Literally, without thinking about the connection to what we were going to talk about, I almost texted you, hey, Sanka, you dead man, when... Uh, you didn't respond to my text earlier because that's like <laughs> that's my catchphrase for when people don't respond to me. You know, people say Bueller, yeah. I say Hey Sanka, Hey Sanka, are you dead, man? Which is something they say <laughs> throughout that movie. From that movie. Yeah, straight mm-hmm. from that movie. So yeah, yeah no, uh, Jimmy Cliff. Let's talk about what happens with Chris Blackwell. They meet at the World's Fair in 1964. Jimmy's been there performing at the Jamaican Pavilion. That's what it sounds like. There's a pavilion at the World's Fair that is to represent Jamaica. Now, I got to say, I don't know if this was the reaction I was supposed to have, but it made me sort of wish there were still World's Fairs. <laughs> like, that sounds kind of dope. Like, yeah. I don't know if yeah. it's if it's correct or politically correct or woke or whatever, but like, that sounds kind of cool. And have you ever been to Knoxville, Tennessee? You know, they hosted no. the... Yeah, well, okay, so they hosted a World's Fair. Oh, jeez. And, and that's no. what that sun sphere is in Knoxville. Oh, snap. Okay. Yeah, so there's like some World's Fair energy in Knoxville still because of that. And it, may, it every time I go, I'm like, I don't know. This is sort of cool. Uh, so anyway, whether or not it was cool, Jimmy gets an offer to stay in New York. But Chris, Chris convinces him because he sees Jimmy as potentially the guy who's going to help move this music into the mainstream. He convinces him otherwise. This is Jimmy from a 2012 Consequence of Sound interview. I considered one statement that Chris Blackwell made. He said, there are many good singers in America like you, but if you come to England, there's not quite many like you in England. You're going to have a better chance of making it from England than from America. So Hmm. he goes back to Britain with him, and they attempt to record some records together. But Blackwell does not let Cliff lean into his roots. He doesn't let him do what he knows best. Instead, he hires rock producers. This is his plan. So he hires Tony Visconti. You know who that guy is? Uh, The name sounds familiar. T-Rex and Bowie. 
Yes. So imagine T-Rex and Bowie's producer behind the boards for Jimmy Cliff. Because Blackwell wants to make Jimmy Cliff a rock star. Here's a, yep. di- here's a direct quote from Jimmy Cliff again. I think Chris had his own concept of how he wanted to market me. And I had my own concept of how I wanted to be in the world. I guess we weren't seeing eye to eye on all of that. Chris Blackwell, mm. in his memoir, will call the separating of himself from Jimmy Cliff, quote, a storming out. Jimmy Cliff will leave and Blackwell will be left realizing that he has not cracked this concept of introducing Jamaican music to the masses through a rock audience. So his big experiment with Jimmy Cliff has failed. Failed. A week later, literally a week later, around seven days after the dissolution of this professional attempt with Jimmy Cliff, three guys will saunter into Chris Blackwell's office looking for money and things will change forever. Are you caught up on rock and roll bedtime stories and desperate for more rock and roll history? Well, don't worry. We have another pod to recommend for you. Did you know Jackson Brown? Only 16 when he wrote These Days for Nico. And she, of course, cut that song alongside Andy Warhol. By 20, he'd written Take It Easy for the Eagles and then put out five, five quintessential 70s records in succession. In season one of After the Deluge podcast, your host, Justin Cox, is going to take you album by album through the Jackson Brown discography with a new guest each week, including, and I cannot believe this, Jackson Brown himself on the finale episode. The full Jackson Brown season is available wherever you listen to podcasts. In season two of After the Deluge, it's all about Conor Oberst, Bright Eyes. It's in full swing right now, and all you have to do is search After the Deluge wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. I mentioned early that Blackwell had been promoting Jamaican music in London. And this is the way this would sort of work, right? He would take swaths of Jamaican records and he'd try to promote them and sell them in batches. And he wouldn't even necessarily know what were in these tracks, right? They remind me of like the housing crisis when you take the the junk of mortgages and you try to sell (laughs) like like he would just take all of this music (laughs) and try to sell it off. During this time, some of the very early, early non-reggae work from a Jamaican group that called themselves the Whalers, had made its way into a stack of songs that Blackwell was pushing. Hmm. So fast forward to this week in 1972, probably almost 10 years after those records were sold. Jimmy Cliff walks out the door, and a guy named Bob Marley and his two buddies, Peter and Bunny, they make up this group called the Whalers. They finished working on a project together, and they've run out of money to get themselves back to Jamaica. So they're looking for where they're going to find cash. And Snap. it was common in Jamaican music at the time that you had to hustle, right? This is like when you start out in a band and you're playing terrible dive bars and you have to go to the owner of the dive bar at the end and tell him to pay you. I mean, they, they know to hustle. So yeah. they're like trying to come up with how we're going to get back to Jamaica. Bunny remembers that there was a producer they worked with who mentioned the name Chris Blackwell to them saying that this guy had sold off some of their early singles. So they're like, oh, I'm pretty sure he's in London. So they go lo- they go looking for Chris Blackwell. This is a true story. This is from Chris Blackwell's memoir, Islander, My Life and Music and Beyond. Quote, they showed up unannounced, plonking themselves down in my modest accommodations on the second floor at Basing Street, where there was a couch for people to sit on and a record player for me to listen to music. They were immediately something else. These three very strong characters. Now remember, he's looking for strong characters. They Mm -hmm. did not walk in like losers. They 
were not defeated by being flat broke. To the contrary, they exuded power and self-possession. Bob especially had a certain something. He was small and slight, but exceptionally good-looking and charismatic. Bunny and Pete had a cool, laid-back nonchalance. As I took the measures of them, I thought, fuck, this is the real thing. Yeah. When Jimmy stormed out, Bob, Pete, and Bunny strolled in. I knew I could do something with them, move them away from where they were, and make their music attractive to college kids. Hmm. I told you Chris Blackwell has this sense. He knew how to market. And now, after all this frustration with Jimmy Cliff, not being able to make him the messenger that takes Jamaican music to the masses, these swaggering dudes walk in, and he's got lightning in a bottle. So according to him, Blackwell, here's what happens next. I asked the Whalers what they wanted to happen with their music, and Bunny said they deserved radio airplay in America. And Bob and Peter nodded along in agreement. I told them, okay, well, if you want that, you have to come over like you're a black rock act. There were no precedents for this kind of thing in Jamaica and barely anywhere being a rock act, I told them, did not mean selling out or surrendering their identity. Pete and Bunny were skeptical, but Bob was immediately intrigued. Black Jamaican music was always evolving from ska to rocksteady to reggae, and reggae was poised to evolve further. Yep. So they're skeptical at first, right? They're skeptical. Chris takes Bob to a tour. This is how he convinces him. This is, I love this. You're going to love this too. So he's like, okay, Bob, come with me. So Island has a tour at the time. They've got traffic and free touring together. Okay. And he takes him to a sold out traffic and free show. And they walk in and he looks at it, points at all these young white kids, young white college kids. And he's like, look at all these guys. He's like, these two acts that are playing tonight, they don't have hits. He's like, we have cultivated a fan base of people who like Zeppelin and who think that pop music is missing the point and they can be your audience too. So it makes sense in theory, but how does that work in practice? Well, when it comes to actions, it means touring clubs and colleges. And the, mm-hmm. the other two whalers are not a fan of that idea. When it comes to the music, you don't have to search very far to hear an example. In fact, you can start with the very first track on the very first record that Chris will work on with the band. And that record is 1973's Catch a Fire. Yep. You know that record? That's got the big one. It's got like Stir It Up on it. If That'd be about the only thing I know on there, though. So the very first song on this is is a song called Concrete Jungle. Uh, H- have you ever heard of a guy named Wayne Perkins? He he almost got Ronnie Wood spot in the stones. Oh, what? Yeah. No, he, I didn't he, know that. He was a Muscle Shoals guy who happened hmm. to know Chris, and he was yep. in the I- Island Studios working on something when they were in the Island Studios working on this record. Chris literally bumps into him in the stairwell and says, hey, you should come play with the Whalers. This guy has no idea about reggae. Nothing. Oh, snap. He barely knows what it is. Can't even catch the groove at first. But with a little bit of coaxing from Chris and pushing on the band, he will become the very first thing you hear when you start Catch a Fire. (laughs) 
It's a little different. It's yep. a little different. And you can see, I mean, here, I should say, you can hear the transition happening. Suddenly, it's it's rock and roll all of a sudden. And then it right. turns into reggae. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And that's Chris Blackwell in the studio with the Whalers saying, listen, we can do this. We can make this work. So they tour clubs. They experiment with the sound. And the third thing that happens under Chris's watch, this band, the Whalers, need to be positioned around the charismatic, dreadlocked, Rasta embodiment of all those things I rattled up. I rattled off at the top of this episode. So this is where Chris says, we're going to reposition this band. You're not just going to be the Whalers anymore. You're going to be Bob Marley and the Whalers. And as you might guess, Tosh and Bunny don't love this. <laughs> not fans of this idea. So they will split up. That original lineup will split up pretty, immediately, pretty quickly. Wow. But the last song from that set of musicians, one of the last things they ever record as a trio is a song called I Shot the Sheriff. Ah, yes. And this is where the next key step in reggae's infiltration of rock and roll takes place. And that next step is acceptance of the sound by key influencers. Yep. We talked about this recently on the show. We talked about this concept of musicians, musicians, artists that other artists like. Yep. Bob Marley becomes one of those very quickly. In the 70s, he catches the ear of guys like George Terry. That's another name you might not know, but you'll know his influence. He's on tons of records. And around this period, he gets an official invite into the band of one Mr. Eric Clapton. Yep, 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 yep. And they're in a recording session for an album. And he shows up one day, and Mr. Terry begs Mr. Clapton to listen to this record that he just got that he cannot stop listening to called Burn It. And that is that next Bob Marley and the Whalers album. Now, Clapton will say he was not familiar, but George keeps harping on him, saying they need to do their own version of a certain song on this record. And Clapton will relent. They will record it. He now says openly that he has some regrets about how phoned in his performance is on this recording. Huh. No one seems to notice in the general listening public because I'm about to drop some knowledge on you that I bet you are not aware of. Uh, 100%, yeah. The only U.S. number one ever recorded by Eric Clapton is his version of I Shot the Sheriff. Really? That's his ah. only number one. In 2003, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Wow. It was his only number one? So on the charts, Clapton Jeez. has only been recognized at the number one spot through a Bob Marley cover song. Not even Tears of Heaven? Tears in Heaven? It's crazy. This is how a musical form that is really only a few years old in its newest inception, starts to creep into American rock and roll. That's the other thing that's crazy, right? So Toots and the Maytals named this reggae in 1968. Clapton, five years later, does I Shot the Sheriff. Yeah, that's crazy. But it's not just Clapton. Yeah. It's not just Clapton. Part of the synergy is that some of the biggest artists in the world are taking notice of this new sound at the same time. In the Ford to the liner notes for this seven-inch singles box, which is about to drop this week, it's a collection of 80... 45s spanning Paul McCartney's solo career. Paul talks about crate digging in Montego Bay. This is a quote from those liner notes. Some of my happiest memories of buying seven inch singles come from the Jamaican record shop that we used to go to when we were on holiday in Montego Bay. 
in town, there was this place called Tony's Records on Fustic Road, and it was great. There were records. You didn't know what they were. They weren't established artists, so it was kind of a great adventure just asking the guy behind the counter, what's it like? Is it, is it any good? Now, you can read uh-huh. more of this excerpt in the show notes. You can get those records in that box set this week. Treat yourself. But it makes sense with this background that as I Shot the Sheriff is getting recorded by the original Whalers in 73, and while I Shot the Sheriff then will be recorded by Eric Clapton in 74, Paul, at the same time, is trying things like the song Sea Moon. Sea Moon Sea Moon Sea Moon Is she Oh Sea Moon Even Maka's getting in on the Jamaican music that he discovered crate digging in Montego Bay. Sure. And he's not the only one. Apparently a very polarizing song among Led Zeppelin really? fans. Yeah, what? How do you feel about this song? I love it, That's dude. Great. It's my favorite Led Zeppelin song. It opened up a whole world of Led Zeppelin to me. I wasn't that into the Zepp thing in college, like when I really started digging into old, you know, rock and roll and stuff that I had missed. And it was fine, like, and I got the significance of it, right? And I was hearing it filtered through other artists, and I remember yeah. there was there was Iconium, I think was it, uh, what it was called. There was a tribute that had like yep. Stone Temple Pilots doing Dancing Days, and like I'd heard these songs, but none of those songs caught me in a pop rock way, in a way that was like an earworm. And right. and then I heard this song, which people kept telling me I was saying wrong when I called it Dire Maker. Yeah, uh, everybody said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> for years yeah uh and then it would come on at a party and mm-hmm. it would change the party the party sure. got cooler when this song yeah. came on it is it, i mean i have to say hands down i do think it is my favorite led zeppelin song and i'm sure that is really offending someone right now that is listening to this and i'm sorry <laughs> to say that okay a few things about this song first of all let's talk about the title uh it is a joke do you know this joke no no so the joke is that two guys are talking, and one of them says to the other, my wife just went on a trip to the Caribbean. And the other one said, like, as a question, but he's supposed to, it's, it's a joke about a Cockney accent. So in a Cockney accent, oh, yeah. he says, oh, Jamaica? Like, did she go to Jamaica? Make, yeah, right, and, right, right. and he goes, no, she went willingly. Like, right. did you make her? Did you make Jamaica. her? Jamaica. Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... That is what it is, right? Um, it's silly, and it shows a little bit about the attitude of this song. I think I think the story is that John Bottom hates it, partly because he has trouble getting this groove. And so yeah. that drum sound is iconic. Do you know how sure. they get that drum sound? So is it? So hold on. Is it like their producer is named after their producer? Do we want to go into this nerdism? Go go for it. It's it's named after their producer, Glenn Johns. Like, Three microphone technique. He would use it on the Who. I think that's what you're referring to. It's it's a three microphone technique that is so simple. I use it all the time. Why people don't use it all the time is amazing. But yeah, and, and it works. And it's like all of Led Zeppelin and all of like the Who 
up to like Quadrophenia was done like that. And, and that was like when like seventies got nuts with microphones. You know, like, oh, we can mic everything. We got twenty four channels now. He's like, I'll take three. <laughs> so another fun fact about this song: they never played it live. I believe it. But yeah, because Bonham didn't think he could capture the drums, and the way they sound sure. is so unique to the recording process. Never played live yeah. by Led Zeppelin, which wow. makes me sad. But love it or hate it, it cannot be missed that having stars at the top of the rock food chain borrowing from and playing with this new art form, right, as the movement is getting its figurehead in Bob Marley, all mm-hmm. of this becomes key in cementing the presence of and an adaptation to Jamaican music in the rock and roll lexicon. Mm. But I will say, I think there's one more thing that truly gives reggae that cachet and the reputation and the forcefulness that caused it to stick around. Because there's a version of this story where reggae is a fad. Because it's it's not an established form of music at this point, right? So right. why yeah. wouldn't it just disappear in the 80s instead of getting incorporated inside rock and roll in the 80s? It could have just filtered out. I think there's the three ingredients, two of which we've already talked about. There's the figurehead of Marley. Mm-hmm. Just, it just Now that it has a personification, it's easier to understand. And that's courtesy of Chris Blackwell. There's the adaptation of the sound by the series Hitmakers. You've got Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. yep. uh, Led Zeppelin, and then you have Eric Clapton all s- jumping on board. But the third ingredient is an event that will elevate the music past the point of being an entertainment choice and into a space of being a lifestyle choice. It needs a walk this way. <laughs> No, that's not, that's not what I was going to say. Oh, okay. All right. uh, <laughs> it needs a life. I mean, it needs to become a life purpose choice. It needs to become bigger than the music. And what event would make something way bigger than songs that you're singing? And that is an assassination attempt oh. on the leader of your movement. And we don't have time to unpack that right now, but next yeah. week... Next week, I'm going to dig into the rumor, the innuendo, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of all of it that surrounds the 1976 assassination attempt on Bob Marley because I think that event is the reason that pictures of Bob Marley still decorate dorm rooms all over the world. <laughs> he's, not, he's not just a musician, not just a marijuana icon. He is now the picture of a revolutionary, right? Yeah. This, yeah, 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 this yeah. puts him next to Shea. Like, remember that? Yeah. Like, I remember you would walk into dorm rooms of a certain ilk. Yep. And there would be, and I think this is still the case. I mean, I walk, if you walk into a head shop, there's a picture of Bob Marley, right? You walk into a place that sells posters, there's always, I was in a memorabilia store in a mall in a Midwestern town recently, and there were pictures of Bob Marley all over the walls. Why? Because he's he's bigger than the music. Yep, yep. He is a figurehead. So we're going to get into that next week. There's a lot of stuff we didn't even touch on. Ah, yeah, yeah. But, but I didn't want to get too convoluted. I do think it's worth noting that at the same time that reggae is taking off, punk rock is taking off in Britain. Yeah. And when this comes over to Britain, those two things, those two scenes are simultaneous. And so mm-hmm. you start to see this meshing of those two scenes. And that's where you get, as you mentioned at the top, the clash. Yep. And that's where you will start to get splintering into into places like the specials, and you will have yep. this this second what I, what I think they would refer to as a second wave ska movement that then a couple decades later will turn into a third wave ska movement, and you will have bands like Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake playing parking lots on the Warp Tour. <laughs> 
Yep. And it all starts with Chris Blackwell getting rescued by some Rastas, feeling indebted to the culture, and trying to merge it with rock and roll. It really is one guy. How amazing is that? That's that's insane. That's insane. And that it turns into this label that is now, I A mean... Giant industry? Heavy hit, Yeah, heavy hitters. I mean, think about who's been on Island. Island's had everybody. And I bought, I bought tons of Island records for punk bands, right? Like in this second and third wave of punk and punk ska sure. and stuff that happens um, that's still... We'll filter through and live on island. There's a that's a pretty good question from your listener. I gotta say, isn't that, Kyle, that yeah, yeah really that's good? A, that's a and the fact that it started in like what'd you say, really like late sixties? Yeah, sixty eight. Sixty eight is when it gets coined as reggae by Toots. That's nuts. That's nuts, that's man. Nuts. If if you've got a question, no pressure. They don't have to be as good as this question. <laughs> they can <laughs> they be have like to be better. <laughs> I was gonna say yeah. They can be like, hey man, what's up with that one time that. <laughs> they don't have to be that good. But yeah. if you got a question, again, hit us up. We are the story guys at gmail.com. You can hit the website. We're the story guys.com. You can hit us on Instagram. It's rock and roll bedtime stories. Um, we love to hear from you and we love to do these deep dives and, and find out more. And next week we will find out more about the assassination of Bob Marley. So get ready for that. Um, until then, Phil, what should people keep doing? Oh, they should keep telling stories. Boom. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.